Holy, holy, holy Father, you are the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We gather here this morning to bless your name. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're going to start at Romans 11, starting at verse 36. This is the benediction at the end of a turning point in Paul's letter to the Romans, and then we'll pick up at 12. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. May God take this time and bless us through his word as we come to bless him. A few weeks ago, Dave asked me to come and speak uh, on the topic of worship. And and I asked him to be a little bit more specific. And he said, the topic of worship. (laughs) And so um, I was thinking about this idea of of what is worship. And I knew that worship was beyond just this, this act of singing and praising him through song. And so I was asking those questions, what is worship? And it called to mind, I remember um, sitting with a friend once and we watched a video and and this friend Peter, he said, wow, (laughs) that causes me to worship, that that brings my heart to worship. And he didn't break in song, but he said that causes my heart to worship. I remember... um, when I was little, Pastor Anderson used to have this, this liturgy, this, this thing he said every time, right after the sermon. He'd finish the sermon and he would pray, and then he would say, now is the time to worship God by the giving of our tithes and offerings. And I remember at the time thinking, worship God? Hmm, is he talking about the special music? Worshiping God by the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you came to church family camp a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a speaker that, that was defining the theology of worship. What is worship? And, and he described worship as, as ascribing worth to him. Ascribing worth to God. Worthship. Naming something as worthy. Naming the greatness or pointing to God. Pointing to his immeasurable glory. I was thinking about it like setting our compass. Setting our compass to point to God and orienting our lives to him. That that is the act of spiritual worship. Setting our compass to God. And so when Peter would say, um, let us worship God by the giving of our tithes and our offerings, we're pointing our money. We're orienting our compass towards God in worshiping him and giving back to him. So this idea of worship as pointing to God or worship as ascribing to God his glory, his greatness. So I want you to think about those as I read this Romans passage again, and then we'll unpack it together. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God, in light of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There are three things that I want us to take from this passage this morning. Three things that I think that Paul is pointing out. And by I, I mean all of the commentaries that I read, as well as as the Holy Spirit as I prayed through this passage for a couple weeks now. Three things. I think we can really see God's vision for worship. And it's going to be surprising. We also are going to see how we miss out on worship. How we get worship wrong as a people. And the third thing I want us to find is the power for worship. So God's vision for worship, how we miss out on worship, and God's power that he gives us to worship, for all you note-takers out there. So a vision for worship. I wanted to find a passage when Dave asked that actually said, this is what worship is. You know, like, if, if, if I was going to think about, like, what is the gospel? Well, there's a passage in Mark 1 that says, Jesus says, this is the gospel, And so let's preach out of that. When I was thinking about what worship is, I was trying to think of a passage that actually said, and this is your spiritual worship. This is your worship. What does Paul say in Romans is our spiritual worship? And I want us to look at this. The first thing he says is this is your worship when you present, when you offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship that's kind of weird. <laughs> Worshiping is, is, is us pointing or ascribing greatness to God. And Paul here is using this temple worship analogy, this temple worship terminology. And it's not really the temple like the singing kind of worship analogy. It's a little bit different. Paul's using this metaphor. We're, we're picturing here as we read about this. In my mind, I picture a worshiper making that long trek to the temple with offering in hand. Guiding that offering, carrying that offering to the temple. And Paul here is saying, our worship, our spiritual worship, is like carrying in hand our sacrifice to God. In the Old Testament, that sacrifice, and we know this because we just went through a whole study on Leviticus, that sacrifice was an, an animal. It was a grain offering. And Paul here in the New Testament is calling us to consider your worship like that. What is that gift that you bring to God when you come to the temple? What is that offering, that present, that that sacrifice that you, like the Jews, would be carrying to God on your Sabbath? And yet, if you actually look, Paul's metaphor is a little bit interesting because he doesn't just say we are the giver of the sacrifice. He actually says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So we're we're, we're the giver of the sacrifice and somehow we are also the sacrifice. Our life is the living sacrifice that Paul is pointing to here. How does this make sense? Theologians say what he's doing here is is called an intentional paradox. Now, wait a minute. A living sacrifice. Now, we just went through Leviticus, and the sacrifices were kind of not living (laughs) by the end. 
How are we like a living sacrifice? In fact, if you look at the word sacrifice in the original language, it's, it's the same word that they would use for a killing. A living killing? I need to present my life as a living killing to God? This is a strange paradox Paul is using. Paul knows that sacrifices end in death, not life. So what does he mean when he calls us to be a living sacrifice? There are two types of sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament. And it's very clear, and I want to like clear the room right now. It's very clear he's not talking about the first one. Paul's not talking about the guilt offering. This was the, the bloody sacrifice the payment, the atonement for sin, the cleansing sacrifice. And we know that Paul is not referring to that sacrifice because Jesus is our guilt sacrifice. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. We know that he ended in his work on the cross all guilt and sin sacrifices. All guilt and sin offerings were ended at the cross and he gives his forgiveness freely. So we know that Paul is not referring to that sacrifice. So what is he referring to? The other sacrifice we see in the Old Testament is the whole burnt offering. This idea of of the Jews bringing their animal, that best animal, that perfect animal from their flock, that set aside that holy animal, that animal that you had been preparing because it was without blemish. And they would bring it and they would put it to the fire as a gift to God. It was holy. It was set apart from the beginning. But it was also expensive. This gift reminded you that all you had was at God's disposal. It was totally burnt. You weren't eating this sacrifice when you were done with it. Some, a little bit of lamb later. You know, this, this is not what the whole burnt offering was. It was a complete consecration and devotion to God. It was reminding us that we are completely dependent on him for what we have. And so therefore we offer back our first fruits. It was a way of pointing to God that he could be trusted. That every good and perfect gift, as the scriptures say, come down from heaven. This is the way of offering back to God freely what he has given us freely. The sign of obedience and trust and love. And Paul says here that we are not just the giver carrying our offerings to the temple, but that our very lives are this offering back to God. Our very lives are the sacrifice being put to death. What do we need to put to death for God? What in our beings is God calling us to offer him? I would think that we would need to put to death how we have tried to become God in our body. How we have sought to be the king of our own kingdom. The boss of our own lives. We need to put to death to offer up to him that we want to live life as we choose. We need to put to death to offer to him how we think we are sufficient and wise, and good, hard-working New Englanders who make our own money. We need to put to death this way of thinking that our way is the best way. We need to put this to death, to sacrifice it, and give it to God. This is what Richard Foster in the Celebration of Disciplines calls the discipline of submission. 
And it feels like death. All of the hard work that I've been doing trying to control my my life and control my finances and control my emotions, all of this hard work, the discipline of submission. And yet, Paul says that this sacrifice leads to life. As we put this to death, Paul says this is a sacrifice that leads to life. As we take up our cross daily, as Neil read for us this morning, as we take up our cross daily, we will transform our minds as we learn to submit to his will. And that is what Paul says points to God. Even more than singing, even more than, than, than anything else, as we offer ourselves, that points to God. But Paul's interesting here. He does not say, let your minds be a living sacrifice. Let your, let your faith be a living sacrifice. Let your belief be a living sacrifice. Instead, he says, let us present, let us offer as a present our bodies. Now, we might read that and go, mm-hmm. The Romans and the Greeks would not have read that that way. The Romans and the Greeks believed that the body was the bad stuff and the belief and the ideas and the mind, that's what was really set apart. And so they would have been like, hold on now, offer your bodies, that's the bad stuff. And Paul here is urging us to present our bodies. I urge you, therefore, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What is he pointing to here? I don't think he's just pointing to our fingers and our eyes and our hands and our toes. I think he's pointing that that God doesn't just want our religion. God wants the whole thing. When God is talking about our worship, he's not just talking about our singing. He says, I don't just want your intellect. I don't just want your spirituality. I want your whole self. Private and public. Inside and outside. Alone and social. Resting and working. Inner and outer. Paul is pointing that our worship is in our bodies. It is in every area of our life. That is pointing to God. Not just when we draw together in our churches, but in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, on our streets and with our families. God is saying, present all of your life, your whole self to God. This whole thing, Monday through Sunday, is your spiritual worship. These now are the places that the sacrifices are offered. Not just that episodic one animal at the temple on Sabbath, but All through the week, God is saying, present your bodies as living sacrifices, as sacrifices of praise. God gives us a vision that worship, in addition to our singing praises and pointing to him in name, is to permeate out through the church and into our communities. But there's a pastor, an old pastor, who says, you know the problem with living sacrifices They keep crawling off the altar. How do we get this wrong? How do we get this wrong? If this is supposed to be thread out in our very beings and in our daily lives, and especially when we draw together on Sunday, why is Paul urging? You know, if if this was something they were already doing, he surely wouldn't have used a word like, I urge you. (laughs) Why is he exhorting? It's because we struggle with this. Verse 2 
points to why we get this wrong. He says that we need to be transformed. In J.B. Phillips' translation of this, of this scripture, he says our minds have been capt- held captive to, by the world around us. Our minds have been held captive by the world around us. And I'm going to confess in front of you all today that I have been held captive by the world around me, by my Western mindset. I have taken worship, this act that's supposed to be pointing to God. And in my conformed, my consumerist, my iPhone generation way, I have taken worship and I've just twisted it slightly. To be about me. So one, Paul gives us a vision for worship. How are we getting this wrong? Paul says we are, we are conforming to the world around us. We have not transformed ourselves in this sacrificial way. I want you to see if you can notice things that I have said in which I have taken worship that was pointing to God and I pointed it instead to myself. So we're going to play a little game here. See if you can notice where I have taken worship that was supposed to be pointing to God and ever so subtly I pointed to me. You know, I didn't really feel close to God during that prayer time. Well, you, that, that style of worship this morning, it, it didn't really move me this week. You know, I was really fed by the message this morning. Oh, that, that sermon, oh, we were visiting this other church last week, and, and, and that sermon, it just didn't really speak to me. I was really blessed by that service. I was really blessed by that service. And those are the only the ones that I was comfortable saying in front of you this morning. <laughs> I've conformed. I've been held captive by the world around me. Unlike Israel, unlike Israel where the temple was the place to offer themselves to God as a sacrifice, to give up as a present, my church for me has become a place where I give less and I come to receive, I come to take out of it. Why have I decided to put the focal point of my church experience on the sermon? It's because I want to get something. I want to get something. I want to feel good from that sermon. I make my pilgrimage to my temple once a week. And the thing that I'm like, the success of that is, is, is when I sit and I listen. And I'm being fed and I'm being blessed by that sermon. I think this is a very subtle, subtle, subtle way that I have made me the target of why I come to church. And so I want to confess to you all that I get this wrong. And it is slight and it is subtle, but I get this wrong. I want to be blessed by the service rather than bless with my service. Notice we call it a service. A service. <laughs> Instead of expecting to present my life as an offering, I come to church expecting a presentation. A message that will move me. 
Instead of a sacrifice, a giving up of my praise and my tithes and my body and my mind, I look at church and think about what it might give me. Good feelings. Intellectual stimulation. Instead of carrying my whole body up to the altar, I focus on how ideas carry me throughout the week. I come to church thinking about what I might get out of it. I recognized this when, when I had children and I realized I was getting really distracted during the sermon. And I'd be like, oh man, that, you know, oh. And my friend Amanda was like, that's your sacrifice of praise, buddy. That's your sacrifice of, well, you know, if I wanted to hang out with my kids in the nursery, I could do that at home. This is your sacrifice of praise, Christian. Charles Spurgeon in in the early 1900s wrote a story about me a hundred years ago and this offering that I bring. Spurgeon says this, Once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot. He decided to give it to his prince because of his loving sovereign. When he gave it, the prince discerned of his love and devotion and the fact that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave... He said to him, here, my son, I want to give you some of my land now to produce an even greater crop. It is yours. And the gardener went home rejoicing. Now, a nobleman named Christian Cordemont, a nobleman heard of this incident and thought, hmm, if that's what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot, what might he give if I gave him a fine horse? And so the nobleman came and presented to the prince a fine steed as a gift. But the prince discerned his heart and said, You expected me to give to you as I gave to the gardener. I will not. You are very different. You see, the gardener gave me the carrot. But you were giving yourself that horse. Are my feelings important? Yes. Is being fed spiritual food important? Yes. But that's not why we show up. That's not why we come here. We show up to offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God. That is our spiritual worship. Church is not a restaurant where the customer is always right. It's a place where living sacrifices come together to offer themselves to God. How do I get here? Lastly, how do I get this power to worship in this way? It's in the text. Did you see it? We missed something in the very first sentence of 12. I appeal to you, therefore. Jess, Jess my wife, likes to say, you've got to figure out what the therefore is there for. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What is the therefore, therefore? It is in view of him. Therefore, in light of his mercies, in light of everything that he said he was at the benediction of chapter 11 that Sarah read for us, in light of everything that Paul has written in his entire letter of Romans to this point, we come and we worship in light of him. Therefore, we worship in light of him. We come to worship this king. This king who came to this world. How do we get this heart of worship that Paul is talking about when we look at his life? He is the one who lived in complete discipline of submission. 
He is the one who did not conform to this world, but transformed it. He is the one whose mission was to discern the will of the Father. He is the one who offered not just his body as a living sacrifice, but as a dying sacrifice. That word offer means voluntary submission. Neil read to us in John 10, he says, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. I offer my life freely and of my own accord. He offered himself. He is the true giver and he is the true sacrifice. It is in light of him when we really see him in light of his mercy, brothers, that is when we start to worship. When we realize that Jesus was not just the whole burnt offering, but he was the bloody offering too. He was the guilt offering and the sin offering. He was the blameless, spotless animal when all of our sacrifices are filled with blame. His sacrifice was holy and perfect and was acceptable to God. And how do we know it is acceptable? Because Jesus said, it is finished. He came with one thing, one thing on his mind to worship, to point to the Father. And he obeyed him to the very end. Paul says, therefore, Therefore, in light of these mercies, I appeal to you. It's not a commandment. Surprisingly, this worship thing, it's not a commandment. It's an emotional word. I urge you, I appeal to you, therefore. He's calling us to explore, to dig deep at what Christ did and respond. He's calling us to explore how Jesus submitted to the will of the Father and became a dying sacrifice for us, so that when we submit to the Father, we get to be a living sacrifice for him. Because he offered his sacrifice and died, now when we offer our bodies in worship, we live more than we ever thought we could live. In light of his mercies. This is your spiritual worship. And and in your translation, it might not even say the word spiritual worship. It might actually use the word that is the actual Greek word, which is logical worship. You see, we we think of the word spiritual, and that's normally translated from the word word pneuma, pneumos. That's the word spirit. But Paul is not using pneuma here. He says that your spiritual worship, this is the word logikos. It's the word logos. It's the word where we get rational or sensible, or logical. And Paul is saying here, when we dig deep, when we look in light of his mercies, the only logical thing is to offer ourselves back to him. Anything less than complete submission to him doesn't even make sense when we see what he's done for us. When I give myself half-heartedly, it's not even sensible if I could really see what he did for me. Theologian Scott McKnight says, the central question of the gospel is actually not how can I be saved. The central question of the gospel is who is Jesus? I hear people say, we need, to get, we need to get people to make a commitment to Jesus. And my response, says Scott McKnight, is always, we need to get people to know Jesus. Because if they come to know Jesus, they will be struck by his beauty. It will sneak past their defenses and speak to a generation suspicious of our truth claims and unconvinced by our moral assertions. When they come to know his beauty and goodness and truth, they will naturally 
make a commitment to him. Will you join me in digging deeper to view the mercies of God? Will you, will you join me in offering yourselves as spiritual worship? I want to close with a story. When I was in high school, I had to read a, bio, a biography for AP uh, English in high school, 12th grade, and my mom suggested that I read The Hiding Place by Cory Ten Boom as my biography. And if you're not familiar with Cory Ten Boom, she and her sister Betsy were Christians who were hiding Jews, and they were put into a concentration camp. And at the end of the book, um, Betsy is, is uh, killed in the concentration camp, and Corey is saved, and she writes her story. And I want to read a passage that struck me and stayed with me from the hiding place because I see in that somebody who has dug deep at the mercies of God, and it leads her to worship. In fact, it leads her to sacrifice everything. This is the place in the story where, where Corey and Betsy are standing in line for their weekly medical inspection in a Nazi concentration camp. Corey Ten Boom says this, and this is how I will end. I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how soldiers had slapped him and laughed at him and flogged him. Now such happenings had faces and voices for me. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection Naked, we had to maintain erect, hands-at-side position as we filed slowly past the flanks of grinning guards. But it was one of these mornings, while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page of the Bible leapt into life for me. I had not known, I had not thought, the paintings The carved crucifixes show at least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly know, was out of the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned toward Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue-mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes, too. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey. And I never thanked him. Will you dig deep with me? as we gather on Sundays. And like Betsy, it will give you and me courage to offer ourselves as living sacrifices and give our whole bodies to him. I appeal to you all, therefore, brothers, to join me to come and worship and bow down in view of his mercies. When we gather together and we glimpse at his glory and love, our only logical response will be to fully yield ourselves to him. And not just on Sundays, but throughout our entire lives. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son. You sent your son to become sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us our guilt offering, 
and you consumed him up on the altar of the cross. He was naked and was without reverence because that is what our shame is. Naked and without reverence. And with his dying breath, he said, it is finished. Father, we praise you, though, that you raised him and we get to live in that resurrection life. If you raised him and his sacrifice, how much more will you raise us when we sacrifice for you? May you fill us with this resurrection glory. May you fill us with your Holy Spirit. May you give us eyes to see your glory and eyes to see when our eyes turn inward. Help our compass to point and direct to you. Help us to dig deep and view your mercies that we might respond to you in worship. That we might give everything to you because you are trustworthy. It is in your holy name that we pray. Amen.